Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am here with the esteemed trio, Justin Taylor, Colin Hansen. Good to have the band back together, and we will jump right in in just a moment. Life, Books, and Everything, that's our very esoteric outline for this morning. We are going to talk a little bit about life and then books, and maybe we'll hit on everything. I want to thank Crossway, our sponsor, and in particular mention, this is this is really an impressive, they do a lot of impressive things, but they are working on the complete works of John Owen, the first available volume, The Holy Spirit, The Helper, which is volume seven, uh, the series edited by Lee Gaddis and Sean Wright. Owen, as most of our listeners will know, is one of the most important theologians in history. There's not too many people you can say that and not be exaggerating, but it's true. And this is a, is this right, Justin? A 40, 40 volume series to be released over a six-year span, the complete works of John Owen. This is a monumental undertaking, so do check out this. It's volume seven on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then the helper, then Holy Spirit, the comforter is volume eight. So these first two volumes are available. Justin, anything else you want to say about this? I mean, how long has Crossway been working on this? This sounds like a major undertaking. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how long, but I, it feels like at least a decade of talking about it and working on it, you know, just getting the material and then uh, it's fresh translations of all of the Latin as well. The 40th volume is actually just a volume of indexes of the entire 39 other volumes. So really excited about it, but it is a monumental undertaking with an international team. How many volumes were in the, the old Banner series? Yeah, I think 16 uh, in the Hebrew and is it 20 in the... Uh, okay, but so I, they don't that, match up exactly. No, no. And, and this has more material than, than is in the band yeah. one, too. Yeah, amazing. So thank you to Crossway. All right, Colin, Justin, good to have you back. We were going to have a conversation a couple of months ago, and sadly... Our conversation was going to be with Tim, and Tim is going to be with the Lord. So happy for Tim, sad for the rest of us. And we are going to talk about Colin's book. Now, uh, I believe, Colin's you've had lots of opportunities now to talk about your book and to talk about Tim. And of course, we miss our, our friend and our brother, and we'll get to that in a little bit and maybe just share a few reflections. I know we've all had opportunities to do that already. But life. All right, we're here at the summer Colin, you are you are literally about to catch a plane, like Justin said, like Tom Cruise style, <laughs> running after the plane filled with uh, separatists or the syndicate. How come anytime I'm watching a TV show or a movie and there's just a really, really, gr- you know, big group of bad guys, it's the syndicate. So what are what are you doing? You're catching a plane out of the country? Yeah, if, if Tom Cruise brought all of his kids with him, that would be a quite different movie. Do you get mistaken for Tom Cruise often? Um, um, all, the, all the time, or yeah. every random Midwestern guy who played football. Um, one of the Weren't two. you the offensive lineman <laughs> on the Vermilion Muskrats? I don't know what they are. 
Tanagers. Just oh, the Tanagers. Okay. Um, I don't know what a Tanager is, but that's what they are. Um, yeah, so we are, we're actually headed to Tyndale House in Cambridge. I know a place that's near and dear to many, including Crossway. A lot of great partnerships over there. So at their uh, kind invitation, I'll be renting out their Hawthorne House for a month with my family. And uh, very eager to be able to be to be doing that. I'll just be working on various things, including just books for the for other podcasts and other things that I'm writing, and some different apologetic works on on morality, especially. So it should be should be a fun month. We'll have an event in the UK or in, in London, I should say, uh, as a tribute to Tim and as a remembrance of his of his ministry. And I'll talk a little bit about the book there. And um, it's their 20th wedding anniversary for Lauren and me, so we'll have a little bit of time to ourselves as well while we're over there. But um, yeah, I mean, and there's, it's going to be fun time. And then I've got an eight-year-old son who absolutely loves history, loves uh, World War II. So <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> surprise, surprise there. So we'll we'll get over to uh, Europe, Lord willing, and uh, the continent and and see some things. Yeah, England, it's not Europe anymore. Yeah, that's right. They're totally separate. Yeah. You know, I got to be clear. You got to cross that channel, and uh, yeah. So we'll we'll get a chance to see you know, Bastogne and Normandy and toss in Paris there a little bit as well. So it's an epic and daunting trip, but we're looking forward to it. And uh, I know you and your son love the Civil War, so you're going to go over there and like they had their own Civil War, son, and <laughs> see gonna, some Civil War sites. It's going to be very confused. There was a there was a time when I was walking him around town, and and I said, "This is just such the perfect day." And he looked at me and he said, "Dad, it's not the perfect day. The perfect day would be seeing a World War II battlefield and a Civil War battlefield in the same day." Now, you know, he didn't clarify which Civil War. So that should be possible. For should us to be do possible. I find that that the English Civil War doesn't loom as large in the imagination <laughs> as the American Civil War, which which is understandable. It was longer ago, and their history is much, 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 much longer. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Have you have you reflected on that? Have you have you thought about in your reading why that Civil War doesn't mean nearly as much? The I mean, ramification. I mean, they were they just the English fought about everything forever. <laughs> I think that's I think that's true. I think it's just a longer perspective, yeah. you know. And I don't know. I don't know the per capita deaths and things like that. I think the reason the American oh, it has Civil to be War, less. Yeah. yeah, exactly, looms so large is because it was the first truly modern war that presaged what we saw in things like World War One. Uh, so I think that in some ways would be a closer parallel than the English Civil War. It's just when you see one battle at the, at the outset of the American Civil War having more casualties than every other American conflict combined to that point, I think that gives you a little of that, of that perspective. Plus, I think it mostly lives, it, I think it also could be, Kevin, because of its regional yeah, right. I was going to say that it, it wasn't regional in the same way. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot of the American South's identity that keeps that alive as well. So, yeah, I mean, but I'll be looking forward to that. I remember going over to uh, a couple times I've been in Germany, and we don't talk a lot about the, the wars of religion or the Thirty Years' War, and yet that one looms a lot larger than just about anything else in terms of people's remembrances of devastation. And, and that had a lot of similar consequences in terms of setting trajectories for what country would turn out in what way and what religion. So in some ways that one uh, stands out a little bit more. But, um, but for somebody who's, I mean, going all the way back to college, studying European history, I'm, I've never been to the UK. This will be my first time. You've never been to the UK? I know. 
Don't well. mention the war. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, first time, yeah. yeah. So, Wonderful. Uh, Justin, wh- are, are you going to the the Corn Palace or Omaha, or what's on uh, your summer schedule? Yeah, true story. The only travel I've done so far this summer is to Sioux Falls. <laughs> so, Ooh. Yeah, to get, Did you walk the river trail? <laughs> no, just went to a Wild West water park. Yes. So, yeah, not, not quite as exciting as God cramping the old grounds of the Civil War. In it's all it's all in the eyes of the beholder, Justin. <laughs> That's true. No, just some Midwestern travel of Minneapolis and Chicago. Uh, so no no huge travel plans this summer, though. We'll maybe go down to Texas uh, in July and see our oldest daughter, who's living in Austin. We'll oh, meet her down there and get to see her. So that'd be great. Good. Is she keeping Austin weird? Yeah. Austin's keeping her weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, yeah, we, for the first time, uh, we are not going back to Michigan, or at least not the whole family. Maybe we'll see if uh, somebody, my wife or I, can get a, a quick plane trip up there sometime later in this summer. But we're at that age. Well, we have uh, we have a lot of kids, and so we have we have some that are working. We have uh, some that are very young and don't travel well, and some that are going to various camps. So we don't have plans to really do any family vacation. Uh, we're terrible people, but that's you know. And this sounds like a lame excuse, but any parent out there who has this situation will understand this is not lame. We we have a four year old. I'm not exaggerating. He cannot ride more than a half hour without puking. He, oh my. he yeah, he just can't you got to pump him full of Benadryl, Dramamine, oh. I think it's the same thing. Uh and he just so to drive 12 hours up to Michigan, we have learned is somebody sitting next to him holding a trash can for a long time. So the cramming cramming uh, 11 de Youngs into a 15-passenger van and driving 12 hours is has got to be difficult, and flying all of us is expensive. So we are mostly staying put here, and I will uh, get some time off in July and have uh, some vacation and some study leave, and my big project is to finish a book called Daily Doctrine, which I think I mentioned before. And I hope somebody actually buys this book when it's out there because it has been the book that I've worked on the longest. It will be the longest. It's probably, uh, I forget what the contract says, Justin Crossway is doing it, thankfully, but it's probably 150,000 words. So it's kind of a mini systematic theology. It's kind of a daily devotional, 260 chapters on theological topics. So, uh, Harry Potter, here we come. This is going to be, it's going to be put my kids through college, but I'm, I'm, I have 185 chapters written. And so I have 75 more to go. So each one is, uh, about 550 words. So I've got 25 days set aside in July, three a day, it's about what I can do. It's a bit of a grind, but you are sure excused I'm... for not taking a family vacation. <laughs> I, that's why I'm not taking a family vacation. You've sufficiently explained yourself. I, I've I've been worried about taking my one year old on a 
you know, transatlantic flight and just what are people going to think? But what do people think when the DeYoung family walk onto a plane? <laughs> they think a, a lot of uh, alternating between, wow, that's amazing, to is that a reality show, to probably a lot of judgmental <laughs> thoughts. It is the, uh, you know, everyone older than our four-year-old can be fine. Um, and we're good parents, mm-hmm. so we can pop them in front of an iPad. But the two-year-old and the four-year-old, so we flew uh, to Michigan over Christmas. And yeah, even that, a, a two-hour flight Ugh. and then waiting in line for, I think we had to get two rental cars or something. Yeah, it is. So going over overseas with little <laughs> kids, uh, yeah, don't be afraid to drug them. <laughs> everybody knows. Everybody knows you're not talking about a vacation. You're talking about a trip. It's You're a trip. It's not a vacation. The vacations come in another location later when the kids are out of the house. Uh, all right. So, uh, Colin, you've I know had lots of opportunities uh, since Tim's passing. I've seen you on uh, lots of different media, secular media, Christian media, talking about Tim. So just. Give us um, in, any any insights, any particular conversations you had with mm-hmm. Tim coming to the end of his days. Uh, were you guys in contact about how the book was doing? Did he let you know that, yep, I'm just a matter of days or weeks? Oh, those are good questions, Kevin. Um, you know, we had a... We had an event for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics in New York, and so at the end of April, and we didn't um, we didn't plan that expecting that he could come. We we did plan it knowing that if he if he could come, that would be the only place where it would work mm-hmm. for him to do so. Uh, but when we were there, he had just gotten back from from Bethesda, and he really. He'd had a really rough day. It was just a lot of rough days there in the end, but still spent an hour talking with everybody who was gathered there, all the different fellows and and leaders of the, of the Keller Center. And it it turned out to be a really, just as you'd imagine, a, a memorable time. I, I don't... One challenge, as you guys know, is that there wasn't any mental decline at all for Tim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, it wasn't that kind of disease. So, so in a lot of ways, when you're talking to him on the phone or on Zoom or on on this podcast, you're getting as much or more than you ever had with him before. So you're, you're kind of torn like he doesn't look very good physically. And also, I'm, it's really amazing how that he was willing to do this even in that state. At the same time, you're thinking, but he's as sharp as ever and has a lot of things that he still wants to do and is still hopeful about those different things. And then the negative reports just started coming mm-hmm. in fairly regularly from that point. And so it's, um, yeah, I mean, I had just texted Michael Keller yesterday on, on Father's Day. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. you're just going to have all these different, mm-hmm. different markers now here throughout and... I will say that I I am grateful for this chance, and I'm grateful for for every other chance to be able to talk about Tim. You often hear with grief that that's that's what you want to do. You want to celebrate. You want to give thanks. You want to you want to talk about who that person was and and is in your in your memory and and what they've done. So it's been a really good way to be able to grieve and 
and I and I th- I'm just grateful to God for so many different things. But I'm especially grateful for the time that we did have with Him on this podcast. That's still. Uh, you guys know from this podcast or other podcasts, sometimes you're doing something that just feels different and feels special. And that just felt anointed by the Lord. In, and I think listeners have responded likewise in ways that I haven't had that experience very mm-hmm. often. I did, um, I did do another podcast with Justin Brierley in the UK with Max McLean and, um, and with uh, Molly Worthen. And my interview that I did with Molly was was very similar to that in the sense of you can just sense the spirits doing something in particular in that environment. But that was the one podcast. I mean, it, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast podcast have already listened to our interview with Tim. Mm-hmm. But if not, I just encourage you to go do that. And um, if people are going to listen to another one, that one, just listening to Molly offer historical context was really was really special in that episode as well. Yeah, go back and and listen to the one that we did with Tim and yeah, I had uh as I think I wrote in my tribute, I had my my last communication with him was about the the podcast. I mean, you look back and you you wish it weren't something so mundane, but you you don't know how someone's life's going to go and we certainly had plenty of non-mundane conversations but typical tim very gracious i had written uh, this review of your book it was really more of a re- reflection on tim's ministry for first things that came out in the spring and it was appreciative but it also took you know several several areas of differences between me and tim and typical when I followed up with Tim, hey, did that did that come out okay? He knew I was going to do it, but he I didn't he didn't read it ahead of time, and he just said, "Oh no, thank you. I'm so excited. I'd love to talk about that." Kathy appreciated it, so it was very gracious of Tim. I'm sure if if we had had the time, he he might have found areas to drill down or or push back on, but it was really good. And I'm I'm you know, there's just the Lord's providence that. Uh, didn't have us talking about that or talking about the book, but it was very gracious up to the end to uh, say, yeah, I'm eager to get on of all the things that he had to do uh, wanting to do this. But I'm sure he he was kind in that way to many other people. Uh, have you guys been surprised? Maybe we'll start with Justin. Have you been surprised by the number of, of tributes that have come out to Tim? I think we all understood what a, what a key figure he was in our neck of the woods, but New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, uh, National Review. I, I mean, I don't know how many just mainstream, secular publications ran tributes, uh, everyone from Catholics to non-Christians. Have you guys been surprised by the number and quality of tributes that have come out for Tim since his passing? Yeah, I think any time that you have somebody who's an Orthodox Christian or lowercase o, uh, it's surprising to see people paying attention to them because we're, I think we're just used to somebody like J.I. Packer dies. J.I. Packer is a giant in evangelicalism, but you know the Washington Post might have a little obituary on him, but they don't have a major article. Um, and I've been reflecting on why is that the case, and I think one of the reasons is that Tim just simply befriended so many people that were in influential corridors. And he lived in uh, the epicenter of the United That's States. That's a huge thing. We're right. talking about that. It is so yeah. different. He lived in New York City. Right. His story is intertwined there. If he lived in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or something like that, it would just be different. And he intentionally 
sought out and people sought him out. Um, you know, before the interview that Molly Worthen did, nobody would know that this very accomplished historian is having private Zoom calls with Tim to ask about assurance of salvation and evidence of the resurrection. So he would just quietly did that. And that. I think another part of it is that, you know, not only is he in the epicenter, not only is he building these relationships with, with influential writers and thinkers, um, but he also died in his prime at age 72. Yeah, he died young. Right. If, you know, if he'd lived to be Packer's age, that would have been another two decades of ministry. And by that time, if you die in your 90s, most of the people that you've influenced, you're no longer actively ministering in the same right. way. You're not churning out new books. You're not going on the speaking circuit. Um, you're already a bit of history. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I think there was something, too, about the fact that Tim... Uh, privately reached out to so many people, not just at the kind of the highest levels, but, you know, things came out that most of us wouldn't have known that somebody wrote a blog post and Tim followed up and said, hey, want to chat? And they developed a relationship. And then Tim is also one of the few people that's actually been on social media. And there are people like John Piper who are on social media, but they don't interact with anybody. Um, Tim was very accessible for somebody being as famous and influential as he was, uh, he would just, he would respond to people. And so I think that gave uh, a large swath of people, even those who didn't know him personally, felt probably some form of connection to him. Colin, as you've read lots of those tributes and you knew Tim very well and and wrote the intellectual biography, uh, is there something that's been missing or something that people aren't understanding about Tim or, you know, maybe it's not a misunderstanding, but maybe they just don't know. What what, what have we not heard? Uh, something good or I don't mean something bad, but maybe just something about the the way he was that, that hasn't been out there yet. Well, I think, Kevin, it's connected to the nature of my book, meaning that there's not a lot about the impact. Um, and I think it's because of what you guys have talked about there. It's because there was still an expectation of a lot more ministry to come, other books to come. I mean, essentially, he had retired from Redeemer Presbyterian Church, but he'd not remotely close to retired from ministry when he died. So my book, for a whole variety of reasons, just because of our relationship, not knowing the future with him, there were a lot of reasons why I didn't talk about that. It was it was never in the conception of my book that it would talk about his influence. But I think, guys, that that's, that's the open-ended question that I've gotten a number of different times. And that's the thing that you can't really assess. With Billy Graham, you're talking, again, another 25 years, basically, that he lived. Um, and from there, you're talking about, okay, here's the difference that he made. We can assess the influence of his ministry. We can look back on these things. You can do some of that with Tim, but so much of that is still really open. And it's also made me, helped me to, to realize as well that it is appropriate for this particular podcast. A lot of that's not determined in several lifetimes. Right. Uh, it, historians will determine that. So one of the things that I've said is we can assume that that Tim will be remembered probably pretty similarly to a John Stott or a J.I. Packer. I think that's fairly safe to assume. But Tim was also such an expansive thinker and doer, a practitioner and a theoretician, that it's possible he'll be remembered on a much grander scale, 
Not that that really matters to him because he's seeing Jesus face to face, but it's just part of the work of history and subsequent generations to process, to do that work. And so that'll be interesting to see how does that actually get remembered? We just don't have the context to be able to know. We don't know, is the Gospel Coalition going to disappear in five years? Is city to city going to take a radically different turn? Is something going to happen in New York City that would snuff out aspects of Redeemer Presbyterian Church? I, I don't know, but those are the kinds of things that dictate so much of that legacy. So bottom line, I think, Kevin, the answer to your question is, is simply the legacy. Normally, when we're talking about obituaries, we're talking about legacy when it's interesting, as, as we've seen here, most of the tributes, instead of talking legacy, have talked about relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a really good point that uh, is intuitive, and yet we forget it, that so much of someone's legacy is to be determined by the people that come after him. And, and, and you can't determine that, obviously, when, when you're gone. I mean, you just think about uh, people at the founding era of... Can you guys hear me? Sorry, my camera yeah. keeps turning off. Yeah, we're good. You think about the people uh, at the founding of our country. Well, you didn't know what the United States of America was going to be. So I studied John Witherspoon and he's, you know, key president at the beginning of Princeton. Well, you don't know that Princeton's going to become Princeton. It's it's the yeah. College of New Jersey. It's this yeah. small place. It meets in one building. There's a few dozen students. So there are stories like that all the time. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the PCA. And so we remembered some of the founders and some of the key influences. Well, when, when you started that, you didn't know is, is it going to get bigger? Is it going to be smaller? Yeah. Is it going to go for 50 years? Is it going to go for 500 years? And so someone's legacy can be augmented or greatly diminished just depending on what what happens to them, their followers, the institutions they were a part of. And those are things over which they have no control. So oh, just... a, lot, a lot remains to be written about Tim. And I look yeah. forward to, I mean, yours was a great start and, and yeah. you understood that's what it was. It was a great right. start. Yeah. I look forward to dissertations being written, other biographies being written, looking and trying to, to place him in his intellectual context, looking at strengths and weaknesses, looking at all, all of this because he really merits that kind of attention. What were you going to say, Colin? Well, I, I was just going to d- use the kind of cliched example of Alexander Hamilton <laughs> in that case of just think about the different Think about how Thomas Jefferson's legacy went a certain direction, right. especially because he lived for so long, and especially because of his correspondence with John Adams. But then consider the importance of Thomas Jefferson in founding one of the political parties that's still around, whereas Adams did not. The Federalists were gone. Therefore, people don't remember Adams. They remember Jefferson. Jefferson's this titanic figure for all these you know, centuries, of course. But then consider more recently... Now, all of a sudden, his reputation is much worse. And somebody like Alexander Hamilton, who, despite all of his accomplishments, was in many ways a footnote. Except uh, for the $10 the, bill. Yeah, except for the $10 bill back, you know, during from that time. But what did he have? Well, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, that's one right. thing he had. Yeah. But second, and of course, Ron Chernow before that. But he had Eliza. He had his wife who lived for decades and decades and decades after him. And a lot of that dictates things of how history goes. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I guess, um, I don't know how you guys think about this, but, but the way I basically think about it is it's a fun thing for historians, 
but it's not necessarily a great thing to think about yourself precisely because it's, I mean, it's just being humble before the Lord, realizing that you right. can't affect these things. And also, what does that matter? It's not what you experience. And, and you, it does help you to see then also those eulogy virtues that how yeah, you right. will be remembered is really more about who you invested in and how you treated them. Justin, you, you've, you've been very close to John Piper and, and uh, we, we love John as well. And you've done a lot of work on him and his materials. It, does he think about legacy? I mean, we, we pray John's got many, many more years of fruitful ministries in really good health at the moment. Does, how does he think about it? Cause he, he must, and it's not, if you do it in the right way, it's not vain in fact, it's stewarding what God has done through you at that age to think about your legacy. Uh, have you had these talks with John, and how does he think about this? Yeah, we haven't talked about it directly that much, but I think that anybody who has any measure of influence thinks about it to some degree. And I think that there's a question of, do you try to suppress that as a, an inappropriate thought, or do you try to steward it well? Uh, John has a great organization built around him with Desiring mm-hmm. God that can take some of that burden and say, well, we'll think about this. I know one of the questions for the ministry was, you know, thinking about post-Piper, what becomes of Desiring God? Do they do more of uh, the Ligonier model or do they do more of the Martin Lloyd-Jones model? The Ligonier model is uh, a lot of people who have been influenced by Sproul, but then can write in the same vein and trajectory of Sproul or Martin Lloyd-Jones ministry, that's just, we're just making available what Martin Lloyd-Jones preached. It's not any sort of uh, movement, right. any any building of that way. So I think John has had the luxury in a sense of, of letting uh, a team around him think about those questions. But yeah, I think it's just human nature to wonder how will you be remembered and how can these ministries and institutions that uh, one has started continue on in the same way and value the same things, even as they adjust contextually as, as various things change. And as we know, the three of us, no matter what safeguards you put in place, it's very difficult to continue a ministry, um, especially if it's forward thinking and creative and expansive. So, Right. Well, that's what I was going to say just briefly there, Justin, is that it's so interesting that Piper and Keller, such expansive thinkers, such wide ranging figures, it's part of why very so different thinkers and very different from each other, yeah. with also some interesting overlaps, which is something that I, I talked with right. John about for my podcast in reference, yeah, yeah. in reference to Tim. But that is precisely what makes it so difficult for them. And so one of the things that I'm working on with Tim right now, I'll be talking about it at the Gospel Coalition's National Conference in September. I'm going to talk about Tim, and it's from the first message he gave at the first gathering that would become the Gospel Coalition. This was May of 2005, and he's describing legacy, and it's the legacy of Jonathan Edwards in that case. And he's describing via Knoll and Marsden and others the way that those you know ministries had fragmented into Edwards of a kind of a you know over here the Princeton tradition over here the New England tradition over here the Finneyite revivalist tradition but how he they all kind of came out of him but they went in very different directions 
And Tim's talking there about how that has been lost for more than 250 years, basically, at that time. And I think in a lot of ways, Tim was trying to bring those things together. That's what I'm going to be talking about there. But just shows you that's hard to hold together when you're doing that much. And it's no surprise that when legacy comes into play... Your successors might be good at one of them or two of those right. things, but they really can't hold all of them. And sometimes th- things get out of whack and you take different trajectories. That's, that's a real danger. And to remember that Tim was preeminently, for most of his life, yeah. a pastor. Right. And yeah. he did, and many of his books come out of those sermons, but right. he, he was doing the weekly grind of putting a sermon yeah. together every week. And even when the church was was big and at a very big church, there's there's some nitty gritty things you can't do. But he still yeah. had staff meetings and still had elder meetings <laughs> and still had, you know, probably some visitation and counseling. He had the things that pastors do. And, and Piper, same thing. Because people have wide, expansive ministries and writing ministries, it's easy to think that they're just a public yeah. figure and forget they're they're embedded in this local church, and that's what was most important. I, I want to just mention before we get on to some books. Uh, I do want to say something about uh, our friend as well, Harry Reader. You know, yeah. Colin, you were the one who who called me, and yeah, I saw I Colin Hansen, and yeah, I, I knew either him. there's some TGC meltdown. That's sometimes <laughs> when you call, or or I knew that Tim was very sick, and I was sure you yeah, were calling, and I you know. said, "I bet you think I'm calling to tell you that Tim has <sighs> passed away, but I'm 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 calling to tell you that Harry Reader. I mean, I was That's in, terrible." Uh, shock. Thank you I for know. letting me know. I was in shock, and it was just within moments in that, I, you know, the article came out on one of the Alabama news sites and started going around really quickly. And it, it, it seems from talking to the family, very likely that he, he didn't pass away because of the car accident, right. but by a, a heart attack or some heart episode and had been having some signs of that and fatigue and other things over weeks and months leading up to that. And there's some some comfort perhaps to, to think of it in that way. But I was just at General Assembly and uh, it was a good General Assembly and there were lots of, lots of comments and remembrances. A, a, a name that people wouldn't know as well as Steve Smallman, who is a pastor at McLean Prez in D.C., and also one of the, he was in his 80s, and he passed away shortly before Harry did. So there's lots of mentions oh, of, wow. of Steve Smallman, hmm. Harry Reader, and Tim Keller, uh, these three men in their 70s and 80s who all passed away within days of each other, and Tim and Harry within 24 hours of each other. And uh, for you know, Harry didn't write the books that Tim did, but for people in the PCA and anyone who who came across Harry, I mean, he was uh, a force of nature. And of course, I serve at Christ Covenant here in Charlotte, and that's the this is the church that Harry came to start. And so I'm actually there's a funny story. A couple of weeks ago, somebody came through. This was after Harry passed away, and. I think I think somebody was visiting, and they said, "I know I visited here a couple of years ago when you were on vacation, and you had had Harry come in and, and preach for you here back at Christ Covenant. I invited him back, and uh, this person said, "I said, wow, Harry, it must be must be really great to be able to fill in and, and preach in Kevin's Kevin DeYoung's pulpit." And he, I think he said, this person said, Harry's eyes got got wide, and kind of a smile came <laughs> over his face, and said, "Well." 
I think it's nice that Kevin DeYoung gets to preach in Harry Reader's pulpit. <laughs> uh, when, yes, uh, I can just imagine Harry saying that, and very true. So yep. I was uh, got to sit with uh, his his wife and his three kids at a luncheon at, at the PCA General Assembly and talk to them, which was wonderful to reminisce. But uh, if if you're not in the PCA, you might not know the the impact that that Harry had. And uh, the dynamic preacher that he was, and and no Briarwood, uh, Colin. Colin yeah. actually went with me on one of the Harry yeah. Reader oh, Civil War trips. It was amazing. We went to Gettysburg. <laughs> we went to Antietam. I've often joked, you know, with Harry. I said, I thought, I thought the North won these two battles, but but I mean, he he had such a command. He really was, uh, you know, a, a self-taught expert in yeah. civil war regiments and history and all the things and love to draw those leadership lessons. But uh, Colin, what if people yeah. aren't familiar with the PCA hmm. and aren't familiar with Birmingham, where you live, they yeah. wouldn't know what Briar Wood, Briar World. In fact, somebody said yeah. at the, the funeral, which was a just a beautiful, wonderful funeral, uh, that Harry would say, Briar Wood, Briar Wood is not a big church, it's a small city. <laughs> with its own police force. <laughs> I mean, Tell us just what, so. what's, what's the, you know, you live in Birmingham. Yeah. What's the, the effect and, you know, the, the resonance there and what kind of shadow literally and figuratively does, does Briarwood cast in that area? Yeah. Birmingham is a small enough city and Briarwood is a big enough church where you can legitimately say that it has affected the city that it's shaped the very nature of the city. Briarwood grew along with the suburban growth mm-hmm. of the city. So, so Frank much Barker of, was there. And Frank the- Barker. And, and also, it's, it's also big enough to be able to, to have so many different streams to be part of it. And so it's very difficult to characterize. Um, so when you say PCA, people have their own conceptions of what that means or what it doesn't mean. And Briarwood really defied and defies to this day a lot of those different things. And so, but the one thing that comes to mind is just their absolute commitment to mission. Yeah, that is Locally big. and internationally, they are a force. And no, and no matter where you go in the city, somebody is connected to Briarwood. It's as simple as that. And it literally is the place where the PCA was founded. They've got the official plaque right out front. December 4, 1973. We just remembered 50 years and how many times we saw they... Now, not the same building. That building was was built subsequently, but Briarwood is the mothership of the PCA. So there there you go. And um, and so... And Harry, look, I, I give the guy all the credit in the world for succeeding Frank Barker. I mean, Frank's, uh, and, and he lived for almost entire, almost all of Harry's, Harry's tenure. Men, yeah, a living legend. At Briarwood really. as well. So, it, I mean, one other thing that Kevin and I was thinking about, I don't know if, if Kennedy Smart's name came up at all at yeah, General yeah, Assembly, sure. but it's fascinating. He's the person who brought Tim down to West Hopewell and, uh, and outlived Tim. Still alive. Still with yeah, us, yeah. which is amazing to think about. But that was a, I mean, even, even, I mean, Tim and Harry as, as you know, obviously, Kevin didn't always agree on things, whether at the Gospel Coalition or more broadly in the PCA. And just having losing both of them at the same time was was tragic and symbolic of of all the work that they also did to to put the denomination on a strong trajectory, even as they kind of worked through some of their differences there. So, yeah, people outside the PCA might not know. If, I mean, if you the the five biggest churches. In the PCA, 
I mean, you you would have Redeemer and you would have Briarwood there among yeah. those very biggest and uh, and most influential. So yeah. it really it really is a loss. Uh, Justin, anything to add before I switch us over to talk about some books? Nope, go for it. All right, books. So it has been a while since we talked about books. I'm going to give you some, let, let's go around the horn twice here. We'll try to be brief. Some books that you've completed, and then we'll go around a second time, some books that you're hoping to read over the summer. Uh, so I'm going to give you quantity. I'm not going to say a lot about these, but I, when I finish a book, I just write it down in this nice little book, moleskin here. And uh, I read books in different ways. So sometimes it's more of a skim, sometimes it's close read. But let me just give you some books I've finished recently that I enjoyed. There's a whole bunch of them. Let's see here. Oh, this might be a fun summer read for someone. It's got a great title. Have you read this, uh, uh, Colin? It's by Susan Wells, An Assassin in Utopia, The True Story of a 19th Century Sex Call in a President's Murder. (laughs) I have not, but it, it, I'm intrigued. It's intrigued. <laughs> it's about the assassination of uh, Garfield. Yeah, sure, okay. Uh, and so it's 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 not a long book. It's well written. It kind of weaves several different stories at once, and it's got that great title and talks a lot about these weird utopian Oneida community in upstate New York. So that was uh, Matthew Roberts, Pride, Identity, and the Worship of Self. Matthew is uh, IPC, a Presbyterian pastor in the UK, and that's a, a good book about this issue of identity, published by Christian Focus, came out this year. Uh, what else did I just finish? Uh, yeah, some people may be interested in in this. Uh, Raphael Manguel, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Dec- uh decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. So a criminal justice book, whether uh, everyone agrees with everything or not, but that was a good book. And uh, let's see. Oh, uh, just mention one other Mary Harrington feminism against progress is a new book that came out. So there's a number of these. This is uh, it's different than the Abigail Favali. I interviewed her on on the podcast. You know, and she has become, she became Catholic and writes now as a Catholic. And Mary Harrington, I don't know where she is at on this journey, but is a a feminist who is now coming to see the dead end. So feminism against progress, this kind of cult of progress. It's hard reading in a way, as some of these books are, like Louise Perry's was. Talks very matter-of-factly about the way that sex operates in our, our secular world. And sometimes as maybe somewhat sheltered Christians, and I'm glad to be sheltered, you forget just what it is like. And so it's bracing at times, but as one of these, it seems like increasingly there's like one of these every six months now is from a, a really bright female author who's seeing the dead end that is mainstream feminism. So just finish that. Justin, what have you been reading? We'll go around a second time to what you hope to read this summer. Yeah, two that I've completed recently, um, Garrison Keillor's That Time of Year, which is his memoir. Uh, Keillor seems like he writes a memoir every few years, but uh, I listened to it on Audible where he reads it in his wonderful voice, although he's, I think he's 80 now and his voice is slowing down. So it's one of those you can listen to at 1.5 speed. But I think only a Midwesterner would truly appreciate uh, 
Garrison Keillor's voice and his insight and his wit. Uh, another one I recently completed, Gerald Posner's uh, Case Closed on Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK assassination. Oh, yeah. It is so fascinating, especially if you're inclined like we are. And just it, it, he tries to say it is case closed. It is not open for discussion whether or not there was a conspiracy, whether there was somebody on the grassy knoll. And he'll mention these various conspiracies and they all sound plausible. Did Ted Cruz, his father, have anything to do with it? He did. That was That's the one exception. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just have these very matter-of-fact footnotes about, you know, this, this person. You think, wow, that, that really does sound intriguing. And they'll mention, this person actually spent like 17 years in a mental hospital uh, oh. and <laughs> was arrested for perjury several times. So um, it's a, a great historical investigation. So the conspiracies, he, he has convinced you none of the conspiracies hold any water. None at all. Yeah, it was, it was a very, very good book. I, I've never read anything quite like that that's just so definitive and uh, came out in 93, I think, and I, I hadn't heard about it before. So that I've got several that I'm, I'm reading. Uh, two I'll mention historically and uh, one kind of church-related book, Dwelling Place, a plantation epic by historian yeah. Erskine Clark. Uh, just uh, from Mark Knoll's blurb. He said it's one of the best books ever on what it meant in day-to-day terms to be slaves and slave masters in the antebellum South. So he has a treasure trove of research, and it's sort of an upstairs-downstairs book, a historical book on uh, slavery, where he has the primary sources from the plantation owners and from the slaves themselves, and kind of weaving in three generations of family history. And it's, I just got it too, so I'm going to let you get a, a head start and, and try to catch up. It's a big book, but Justin, you it's... You won't pass me. <laughs> no, it, but it's, it's, it's a narrative. I mean, it's written as a story, but it's not... Maybe there's a, a few having to fill in the gaps, but it's not historical fiction. I mean, it, it's rooted in really impressive primary source research. And what I gather from just the beginning and some of the front material is that... I don't want to say he's he's sympathetic to both sides, but I think he he presents, you know, the the humanity of the slave owner, and yet over time, how the humanity is degraded, even as they tried to want to do the right thing, but in this institution, leads them to work against their own, you know, good instincts, uh, and then you know trying to show human agency for the slaves. There, there's there's fewer sources there, but does a good job. So it, it, any initial insights as you've started? No, just a few chapters into it, but I, I think that he seems to be doing the sort of thing that I really appreciate, and I think you guys do too, of sticking with just the facts of history, but also writing with the the flair or the eloquence or the instincts of a novelist of wanting to paint a picture and not just do facts and dates, facts and date, that kind of history writing, which is so boring and uh, has turned off so many people to history. He's, he's kind of combined the two into an epic tale, which you can only do. Your, your, your material, your writing can only be as good as your sources. And so he, he has the sources and then he has the literary skill to pull it off. 
an- another book more recent, uh, Timothy Egan's A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. Uh, New York Times bestselling author Matt Smethurst recommended it to me. So those are kind Matt of, Smethurst is not the New York Times bestselling author. He is author. not the New York Times bestselling <laughs> author, but <laughs> yeah. maybe someday. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. someday. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, is is really good historical nonfiction. As is it well. about the KKK in Indiana? Because for many years that was the the, the largest KKK presence was in, in Indiana. Yeah, nineteen twenties Indiana, and uh, one out of every three men, white men who were born in the state were part of the Ku Klux Klan at that time. I mean, they're Jeez. they're infiltrating the churches. Jeez. They're paying ministers. You know, pay them ten thousand um, dollars. I think the, I can't remember how many counties there are in Indiana. If, if there's 99, 97 of them had a KKK chapter. So it's really just eye-opening. I didn't realize the extent of the KKK at that time, but oh. uh, interesting book. Sobering. Yeah. Uh, Colin, what have you been reading? I'm going to give you five, and I'm, I'm getting, right. I'm thinking about Kevin DeYoung in particular with okay, these. Okay, good. Okay, so, um, so first, this just feels like the kind of book that I would read, and I would mention just to bug you, Kevin, um, Hartmut Rosa's book, The Uncontrollability of the World. Um, short, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> short, short book with just big picture ideas about the nature of modern life and why it feels so difficult for us. We're trying to control it, but the more we try to control it, the more uncontrollable it becomes. Leads to a lot of basic anxieties. Yeah. At the same time, uh, I also mentioned David McPherson's book from last year, The Virtues of Limits. That's definitely an LBE mm-hmm. uh, kind of, um, I think that would accord with our basic political philosophies and instincts uh, there. So I, I also commend um, McPherson. He didn't cite Wendell Berry until the very end, which I very much appreciate there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> a Catholic perspective, he's a professor at Creighton. Uh, university. Right. So they're in Omaha. Uh, a few more. So Pete, Peter Williams, this is forthcoming from Crossway, The Surprising Genius of Jesus. Just a, an exploration of the Old Testament allusions uh, of Jesus, specifically in the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son. So that, that book was right up my alley for a lot of different reasons, in part because of Tim's work on the parable of the prodigal son, two sons, but also because I just, ever since studying with Don Carson, I love Old Testament, New Testament use of the Old Testament, uh, and this book is so rich with those illusions. This just, that's the kind of, that's the kind of Bible study that I like most, and so that was a really fun read. Another one, Kevin, has felt like a book that you could have written, is Thaddeus Williams' forthcoming Mm. Zondervan book, Don't Follow Your Heart. Um, so yeah, he stole the title. (laughs) So exactly. So, um, very, very similar there. And then another one probably given me more food for thought than, than any other, not because it was necessarily new, but just comprehensive Gene Twenge's new book on generations. Um, oh man. I mean, not, not that it's so interesting that so many of the Gen Z, for example, and millennials, I know buck the trend and yet it's very difficult to to argue against the the aggregate there. Simple way to put it, guys, is that it's blindingly obvious that as family and religion have declined, different forms of expressive individualism and anxiety have skyrocketed. And it's like, wait, what's happening to this generation? Well, they've decided and been convinced that 
everything that every generation before them did, they shouldn't be doing, and they don't seem to understand that it's not working very well. So, interesting perspective there from Twingy. Yeah, good. Generations. Uh, if you guys have other books, here's a few that I'm hoping to read this summer. Let's see what I want to mention. Uh, uh, okay, this this is for you, Colin. Here's a okay. book that you're not going to read. But, uh, <laughs> the Leiden Synopsis of Pure Theology. So this is, yep, <laughs> uh, yep this was by four Leiden professors after the Synod of Dort, 1620, 1625. Uh, Davenant just published a, a two-volume edition. There had been an English translation several years ago, but now in two volumes, so it's uh, yeah, it's a two-volume systematic theology, but it's it's in the style of a disputation, and for Reformed theology nerds, this is a is a big deal. Uh, RTS asked if I'd write a, a review of it in the fall, so it's two big volumes. So I'm I'm using I'm trying to read. There's 52 of these disputations. I'm trying to read one each morning as part of my quiet time. Uh, Colin. So I got that. Uh, th- maybe you'll appreciate this more, Colin, but probably not. Uh, I'm also making my way through the old banner book, Southern Presbyterian Church Leaders by oh, Henry Alexander Oh, no, I would White. be interested in that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So it's from the late uh, 1600s to the early 1900s oh, yeah. and just playing catch up be interested in that. for me. Uh, now, this one, you really, you've probably read this. I haven't read this, but so I, I did a blog several years ago. You should go find it. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes where I asked a number of uh, people on the TGC council, give me a preaching book. So these are all pastors, because during the summer, I always like to read, maybe reread a preaching book and maybe read a, a preaching book I hadn't read. So I asked about 15, 20 guys, give me some recommendations of preaching books you like. And uh, I've gone through that for several summers and find new ones. But so the one book, you won't be surprised by this, but that Phil Riken mentioned was not a preaching book. But a fiction book by Frederick Beekner, Godric. Oh. Have you read that? I haven't. I, I, I haven't read things. it. So it was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. It's based on a, he was a real live 12th century holy man in England. But it's written very, I just started, it's written very sort of poetically. And uh, we'll, we'll see if I, if I make it through. Phil, your your artsy <laughs> recommendations, but uh, doing that. And t- two other ones, Separating Church and State by Stephen Green uh, is a new book that came out talking about the history of church and state in America. And then a big biography about halfway through Scott Berg's biography of Woodrow Wilson, not my favorite president, but uh, Terry Johnson, who's the pastor at Historic uh, Independent Press in Savannah, recommended it to me several months ago, and we're we're tracking. We're about moving at the same pace. We're about halfway through. We're into World War One, and we both agree that it's uh, it's well done, but it's pr- it's pretty hagiographical. You think only Christians write hagiography? This makes Wilson like he wasn't really racist. He really didn't do. It. He ever he was right about almost everything. Um, it, it, for for Presbyterians, you know the front part of his life. You're like, wow, this this guy was one of us. He was deep. His dad was a Presbyterian pastor and and professor, and so that was really fascinating. And then Princeton, of course, he's Princeton president. And uh, the the longer he lives, the the, the less I like him. But uh, I'm halfway through. It's a big book. I think I should finish. Justin, anything else? Yeah, at our church, I'm. Uh 
as an elder, I'm over now the children's ministry, which is not my forte necessarily, though we have five kids, but I've got two books I'm going to try to read this summer. One is Deepak Reju's book, R-E-J-U, uh, published by New Growth Press, called On Guard, Preventing mm-hmm. and Responding to Child Abuse at Church. So trying to kind of rework our documents and a uh, few things are more important for children's ministry than making sure that we're protecting our little ones. And then the TGC Crossway, a book by Jared Kennedy, Keeping Your Children's Ministry on Mission, Practical Strategies for Discipling the Next Generation. So I'm uh, going to try to be thinking about children's ministry in the next uh, month or two. Good. Also Did got- you get all your books... Oh, go ahead. Just I've also on the nightstand have Matthew Barrett's new book, The Reformation as Renewal. Oh, yeah, Renewal, I was going to mention that, too. Uh, retrieving the One Holy Ap- Catholic and Apostolic Church, uh, which is a great doorstopper and uh, also just <laughs> no chock kidding. full of an incredible amount of research. I mean, the sort of That's thing... an impressive achievement, 900 it pages. Is. And Matthew's probably about our age. Uh, it it yeah. seems like the sort of book... younger. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like the sort of book you would write at the tail end of your career. I mean, the footnotes themselves. You guys know, doing academic research, uh, you know, some of those meaty footnotes could take an entire day to write, uh, much less to read and process all that material. So, kudos to Zondervan and Matthew for that achievement. Yeah, it is impressive. Did you get your books out any, uh, in that you wanted to mention? Anything else, Colin? Yeah, a few. Um, I, I do read books that are not from Crossway, but. I do love to read books from Crossway. Andrew Wilson, 1776. Well, actually, what, what is it? Remaking the World? Is that the title? Um, so I've already read through an earlier draft, but that's one of the main things. I mean, boy, Justin, if endorsements are indicative of anything, that's uh, it's going to be quite a book. Uh, so I uh, love Andrew's work and, and very interested in that one. I've also got on my list Samuel James' Digital Liturgies, mm-hmm. as well as Matt Martin's Reforming Criminal Justice there. Um, Benjamin Watson's got a new book coming out, The New Fight for Life. Interested in that one. And then the other one that I'm looking forward to this summer, Tara Burton's new book, Self Made. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, should be a good summer. Lots of good reading. All right, life and books and everything. We've run out of time for the everything. I'm going to ask you an impossibly difficult question, but you're going to just give me a one-sentence answer. We are uh, more than halfway through what has unfortunately been dubbed as Pride Month, trying to be Robbie George and others are trying to redub it Fidelity Month. Mm. I think of it mainly as Birthday Month. Uh, <laughs> my birthday, I have two other kids. Uh, we got we got birthdays on June 18, June 21, June 23, uh, Birthday Month. Uh, so we've seen already, and it, it seems to increase each year, both the obnoxious pagan displays of pride, you know, to the point of flying the transgender LGBTQ plus flag in between the American flag at the White House, but then also boycotts and increasingly people who say enough is enough. So here's my impossible question. Have we reached peak pride? Is, 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 are we going to look back, say, you know what, this was at the crest of the madness and though we're not going to be, you know, turn back the clock 100 years or 200 years, uh, we are going to say this was a unique season of madness, and we've pulled back from some of the insanity and some of the 
the soft totalitarianism, or mm, no, although there are people who are standing against it, uh, all of the forces of media, education, institution, and uh, increasingly politics, and often in both parties, are on one side. And so, nope, we're not anywhere near peak pride. What say you, Colin? Peak pride, yay or nay? Um, Yes. Let me explain just briefly why. So yesterday in church, I was teaching my third of three weeks on cultural apologetics, um, and I walked them through Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory. I was going to mention that. And specifically, the reason I walked through that is because... It gives you the language of being able to understand the difference between the LGB That's and exactly the T. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, we don't have time to... You could, you could perhaps do that, Kevin. Uh, it's your podcast. I'll let you <laughs> dictate if you want. But they don't touch the same moral foundations. Let's, I'll just give one. Care harm. Okay. So, basically, that the harm principle is the dominant moral principle in our society. If it doesn't harm right. anybody, what's the problem with it? So, gay now, marriage looks like it doesn't harm anyone. If you're harm against anybody. it, you're harming the nice people who just want to get married. You're the problem. You're the oppressor. And especially once different things related to STDs and others were sort of out, out kind of banned from being talked about right. in relation to those activities, there's no harm. Well, wait a minute. With kids, there's definitely harm. And then you look at the National Health Services in the UK, and they're banning uh, puberty blockers for infant minors. And you realize, oh, okay, so that principle doesn't work in the same way. And so what I was teaching this church was simple. It was that homosexuality as an issue kicks in around puberty. Now, there may be some inclinations and things like that before that, but that's when it usually presents. The transgender question presents from birth. I mean, does not at birth. And so every one of the moral foundations looks different. I guess I'll mention one more authority. Normally, that's one that liberals are not seen to be to be caring much about. But the authority issue under transgender uh, ideology is really is really thrown for a loop because you're undermining parental authority, even for liberals who don't like the way that their children are being sort of legally taken away from them in places like Minnesota, California, and elsewhere, if they're transitioning and they don't support that, even if they're liberal. But here's the other way that that is sort of thrown for a loop. Since Jonathan Haidt wrote that book, The Righteous Mind, we've had a lot of changes. Donald Trump, COVID-19. Now, Kevin, bring it full circle to your point about peak pride. All of the authority now is pro-pride. It wasn't that way in 2012. It was seen as a pushback rebellion movement. Now it's as capitalistic and mainstream as anything could be. It has all the power. So all of these different moral foundations are different, and the transgender jump is the main reason that there's a huge difference. And the the comedians are often the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. they have a sense for what is the dominant, what is the, what has the authority. So there's nothing cutting edge about, you know, you're not going to have a Dana Carvey church lady sketch. I mean, what, what people don't, they don't know what church ladies are and sort of school marm you. It's going to be the transgressive boundaries of comedy are going to be towards this. So yeah, right. Justin, um, I don't know if Colin did one sentence, but all of his sentences were, <laughs> yeah, were, were helpful. What do you say? Peak pride, yes or no? 
Yeah, I, I mean, similar to Calvin, I would say that uh, I don't think we're at peak pride in terms of homosexuality. Um, I mean, now you have President Trump, you know, wanting to be on the bandwagon of I'm in support of Pride Month, too. I think that only increases. And I think that hopefully we've reached the, the peak in terms of the transgender issue and start to see that go the other way. But I think the Overton window has shifted and so that now you seem conservative you can seem conservative or sane being very pro-gay but just not in into the transgender agenda so it's it's definitely shifting so i I give a yes and no answer to that andrew andrew sullivan there's the example right there the key figure in the gay marriage movement jk rowling same thing key you know key figure in both but yeah but of course they've both taken a lot of heat for not continuing to support. Yeah, Abigail Scher, who's got a great book, Irreversible Damage, is mm-hmm. pro-trans, uh, pro-trans for adults. She just doesn't like it for uh, for young girls who uh, you know are, are shifting. Um, but she's seen as so conservative that uh, she, you know, like J.K. Rowling, is getting banned in certain quarters. So the, the window is shifting. And, and yeah, it it is a good reminder for us that uh, the the future, except for God's perspective, has not been written. And no. it's easy to think that it's just obviously going one way. But it but it's it's not. We don't we don't know what it is and lots of things can happen. I remember hearing somebody ask Keller about, you know, are, are you pessimistic about the, the future of the church in America? And typical Tim, he was sort of, well, here's all the reasons why. But he, he ended with some optimism. And one of the points he made is, you know, you, you don't know, but that this next generation rebels against all of this stuff. And you're seeing, I don't know how widespread it will be, but you're seeing glimmers of that. You see more Gen Z men think feminism harms people than, than helps people. You're seeing a slight uptick in, uh, you know, interesting that the uptick in identifying as conservative is going slightly up, except for white women, where it's just going hard to yeah. to liberal. So there's a, an increasing gender divide there. And and wasn't it for the, the first time in decades, the percentage of Americans supporting gay marriage like slightly ticked down? I mean, not enough that that's going to probably change culturally. But with, with the T, I think some people are saying, hey, we, we did not sign. And you know what? If I'm going to be uh, culturally transgressive, uh, no pun intended, by not going with the T, then I might as well do, do this as well. But I... Uh, overall, I share the same mm, basic pessimism, but perhaps this particular madness has reached a peak, and I can assure you, I will never drink Bud Light again. <laughs> I've never, I've never had it to this point it was in never my going life, to happen. and I can safely say I shall never drink it again. All right, thank you guys. Blessings on your summer. Hope to stay in touch via text and otherwise, and safe travels as you run with arms flailing about as you try to catch your your plane and hope you have a wonderful time. And for all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Let me mention on the way out, uh, make sure you're reading your Bible this summer. And if you need a new Bible, check out Scriptura. They have heirloom quality Bibles. I actually do read from a Scriptura Bible. They can re- Recover uh, your old Bible, and you can get 15% off there with the code LBE15. So grateful for Scripture of Bibles. So until next time, besides reading your Bible, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. <laughs> <laughs>